Uh, right at the start of this, I do want to repeat something that I said on my first Sunday back after sabbatical, and, and that was that I am so grateful to the leadership and the church family here at Windsor for allowing me or giving me three months off in the autumn. Uh, not all churches give their ministers sabbaticals, uh, but you do, uh, and I really appreciate and value your generosity. Uh, it was an incredible blessing those three months. Uh, the reason a sabbatical is given, for those who don't know, in, in broad terms is for rest and renewal. Uh, and different ministers use this unique gift of space and time in a variety of ways. But the overall aim is kind of personal and professional development. And the hope is that not only will the individual kind of minister grow out of the experience, but the local congregations that they serve will also benefit in the short and long term. Now, before I share some specific reflections and stories, and that's really all I'm going to do, I want to thank those from Windsor who stepped up and kind of stepped in during my time away, coming back after being off for a total of four months because I had a month's holiday as well, uh, I, I was really struck by the growth that had taken place here. To such an extent that I realized I don't need to be back. I don't need to come back. But anyway, I, I'm back. Uh, <laughs> I particularly want to thank, and I know this is dangerous to name names, but I do particularly want to thank Gordon and Mark. Uh, for all the additional responsibilities that they carried and, and for their sort of can-do, will-do attitudes and servant hearts. So, so I do want to thank them from the bottom of my heart. Plus, I also want to publicly thank all the different people from outside of Windsor who came along to share God's Word on a weekly basis. Lots of you have said how much you enjoyed the variety of speakers and the content and challenge they brought. If I'm honest, some of you shared a little too enthusiastically <laughs> about how brilliant the speakers were. Uh, and so I, I've been receiving counseling ever since. So, uh, and a final thank you to Glenn. Uh, that's Glennis, my wife. And my girls, Shannon, Cara, and Kristen. One for allowing me to clear off more than usual, for allowing me to be round their feet more than usual, and then for having to listen to me banging on about all I'd done more than usual. Uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of that. So as I, I get into this, I am, and I shared this with Brian, who was praying for me before the service. I'm, I'm actually really nervous tonight. I'm actually nervous all the time, but I'm particularly nervous tonight. And there's two reasons for that. One is that I realize it's going to be a lot about me in the next 20, 25 minutes. There's going to be a lot of pictures of me in the next 20, 25 minutes. And the other thing is, it's probably going to come across that I had a bit too much fun, okay, <laughs> an adventure. But all I can say is this, right? I, I do want to be honest about how much I thoroughly enjoyed my sabbatical, and I really did. Plus, I have been asked to share this story, okay? So I need you to cut me some slack. Uh, so I, I know you are a graceful people, so th that's good. Most of you will know that my four key aims and hopes for my time out were to reflect, to reconnect, to refresh, and to restore. And so I had organized a number of different activities and trips and events and experiences that I hoped would stretch and enrich and would kind of feed into these four main aims. And what I'm simply going to do is share what I did, what I discovered, what I've learned, and what I'm taking with me out of those three months. And one of the first things 
that I did at the start of September was to attend the MA classes at the Irish Baptist College in preaching. I know all too well how much I have to learn about communicating God's word in a local church contemporary context. Uh, My route into this role and my severe lack of formal training to preach has always been and, and probably always will be an issue for me. And so the chance to reflect on a number of principles and practices and and listen to the likes of Edwin Ewart and David Luke, who are experienced preachers and teachers, was really, really good. And, And I am keen to learn more about the place and the importance and the practice of preaching and teaching. But one of the key lessons that I've discovered, and I would love to explore further, is the value of feedback and critique. And so I want to invite more of that, which is risky, I know. But I would really love you, and and I do mean you. I'd love more people to kind of feel free to share what you find helpful and what you find unhelpful about the preaching at Windsor. To reflect back via email or directly face-to-face over a cup of coffee, whatever, what you're learning and what you're struggling with as you listen and as you engage. So I'm putting that out there, and I really do mean it. I really do mean it. Because to quote the title of this John Stott book that I I read again on sabbatical, I believe in preaching. I honestly do. And so I'm anxious to grow and develop in this discipline. Although what I would say is this, that as I reflected more on it during my sabbatical, and as I read quite a bit around it, If anything, I ended up more intimidated, more overwhelmed, and more nervous about ever preaching again. And after being in nine preaches later, I still feel exactly the same. I still feel exactly the same. So I am a work and a pilgrim in progress. The next thing I did... uh, on sabbatical was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Thanks to Colin Johnson, and there's enough said there already, uh, I joined him and Toby and four others in cycling uh, from the top to the bottom of the Isle of Man in the annual end-to-end mountain bike race. Now, I own a mountain bike, but I've never raced one. And uh, I certainly have never spent what turned out to be five and a half hours sitting on one, going up and down hills, longing for the finish lane. There were 1,400 competitors who started the race, 1,100 finished. I came 755th, okay? I was the last out of the seven of us, okay? Uh, Colin hammered me. Although, do you know what the most... No, I was going to say depressing, that's wrong. The most distressing aspect of the whole trip and experience was discovering that I now find myself as a veteran man. <laughs> and uh, that, that was the category into which I was put. And again, I've been receiving counseling ever since for that. It was one of the less encouraging aspects of, of my sabbatical. Uh, a week after this, I flew to Biarritz and made my way to St. jean de port And I began walking part of the Camino the Camino to Santiago, the way of St. James, which is across the northern part of Spain. 
And I realize that, and I know this from the conversations I've had since the beginning of December, that, that lots of you are probably more interested in this aspect of my sabbatical than, than anything else. The entire Camino de Santiago stretches for 790 kilometers. Would take you about 30 to 34, 35 days to walk it. Uh, I walked for two weeks and covered 300 kilometers. Uh, this pilgrimage has become quite well known and certainly more popular as a result of the 2011 film called The Way, starring Martin Sheen and James Ness. But can I just check how many people have, have seen The Way? Okay, lots of you. I am going to show the trailer to the movie. I hope that's okay uh, for those of you who've seen it. There's, there's the odd little word in it that maybe shouldn't be. Uh, I'm going to cough loudly at an appropriate moment to try to cover it up, but I may miss it. But anyway, uh, so I'm just going to show you kind of the trailer for this because it, it kind of depicts quite a bit of, 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 what I, of what I did. Disclaimer. Yeah, Gordon Dara. Please speak to him afterwards. You should fly with me. Come on, a father-son trip. It'll be fun. Yeah, right. You know, most people don't have the luxury of just picking up and leaving it all behind, Daniel. We agreed that if I let you take me to the airport, you wouldn't lecture me about how I'm ruining my life. I lied. Hello. Are you the father of Daniel Avery? I was walking the road to Santiago de Compostela, 800 kilometers on the northwestern coast of Spain. This is everything it had when we found it. People have walked the path for over a thousand years. The way is a very personal journey, Mr. Avery. Daniel was my only child. We're gonna walk the Camino to Santiago, both of us. Tom, this is the way. I'm Yost. There's no mystery why I'm doing this trick. Oh, look at cheesemakers. Hola. Hey, Tom, wait. Yeah, you should try some. No, thanks. Tom! Tom, it's me! Oi, I'm from Amsterdam. That's huh? What are you looking to score? <laughs> I love this guy. It wears off quick, I promise. Hello. I'm Jack from Ireland. How long have you been out here? On the Camino or on this particular spot? You pick. Well, geez, uh... It's hard to say. So what is it, on pilgrimage to change your life? Something like that. That box with the ashes. My son. That's brilliant. I mean, tragic, of course. But brilliant. Oh, no! Tom, your son. I'm so sorry, I had no idea. My son was almost 40. Yeah, but he'll always be your baby. What was your son like? Smart, confident, stubborn. Pissed me off a lot. He was a lot like you. Hey, that kid took my bag. Hey! Hey! You can keep the pack! Just give me the box! You don't choose a life, Dad. You live one. What, you can do this on a bike? Why the hell are we walking? You don't choose a life, you live one. There were probably uh, a number of reasons why I uh, wanted to do the Camino or to walk part of it. Sense of adventure, yes. Something totally different, definitely. 
but also because Sean Mullen, and many of you know Sean, he spoke at my induction service here at Windsor uh, back in December 2008. But Sean has walked the Camino de Santiago and part of it on a number of occasions, and he always said to me, David, if you ever get an opportunity, go and do it. And I know there, there's somebody else here, at least one other person here, who has walked part of the, the Camino and had said how much they, they benefited and valued from it. Now, I could talk for a long time about my Camino experience, uh, but here are a, a few highlights. Here's just a condensed version. I, I went on my own, and I, and I planned to walk the majority of the way on my own, but that was not how it turned out. And therefore, that's one of the reasons why I can kind of relate so readily to the film and to the story that's captured in the film. The only place that I had pre-booked to stay was in St. Jean-Pied-de-Port, which is the place that you kind of arrive at. So I'd only booked one night, and I ended up staying in this, this brilliant little hostel along with 18 other pilgrims from all over the world who had arrived to go on pilgrimage for all kinds of different reasons. And I was immediately struck by the variety of people, all from different backgrounds. And as we sat around a communal meal, and, and that's part of the deal, as you arrive at a hostel, you're invited to be part of this communal meal. And as we shared this communal meal, and as the hosts invited each one of us to kind of share why we had come on the Camino, I was really humbled as I listened to different people's stories. Many stories of kind of brokenness, shattered dreams, and they were here for, for different reasons. And, and very quickly, I discovered that this is going to be quite an experience. Now, the three things that you need for going on pilgrimage are, apart from a good pair of walking shoes, and, and they are essential, because blisters are the biggest problem whenever you're walking sort of 25, 26 kilometers every day, whenever you're not used to that. I was really fortunate I only got one blister the whole time. <laughs> And here is me having it threaded. If you've ever had a blister threaded, you, you'll know what that means and if you want to discover more, but it's the best thing ever, the best treatment for blisters. And as you can see, I don't do well with pain at all. Uh, so the three things that you need for the Camino is, is a rucksack and the lighter the better. Uh, hence the reason, and I need to put this out here because a number of you picked up on this and commented on us and gave me a lot of hassle about this. Uh, it needs to be the lighter the better, and therefore, in every picture I'm going to show virtually, I'm wearing the same top, okay? And that, that, that was just for light, but I did wash it every single night, okay? Just need to say that, because there were a few of you who said some really rather hurtful things during my time. So, okay, I, I did wash it every night. So you need, you need a rucksack. The other thing you need is, is a pilgrim's passport, which you pick up in St. Jean-Pied-de-Port, and the passport office is just straight across from that hostel that I was staying at. And that little passport, you kind of get stamped as you go along at all the places that you stay, and that kind of proves that you've walked the Camino. Uh, here's my passport kind of at the end of my two weeks with sort of 13, 14 different stamps on it, the 13, 14 different places that I stayed. But if you walk the whole Camino de Santiago, you've got numerous stamps uh, that you, you can collect. The third thing you need is a shell, uh, which is the symbol of the Camino. And all along the route, which, which is brilliantly marked out, you find these shell signs that keep you on the right path. Now, if you want to know the reason why the shell is the symbol of the Camino, ask me afterwards, okay? Uh, it's a bit of legend, 
but if you're into legend, then, then ask me what, what's, with the, what's with the shell. So rucksack, pilgrim's passport, shell. The other key thing that I took along with me was a holding cross. Uh, here's a picture of it. I've got the actual one with me this evening. This was given to me by, by a couple of close friends uh, who said to me, David, would love you to just carry this every step of your journey. And so I committed to doing that, and I did it, and it was just a little holding cross, and it's made in such a way that it fits perfectly into your hand, and inscribed on the cross is the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you know something that was absolutely fascinating, the conversations that that little holding cross sparked, because people kind of would go, what's that you've been carrying? Like, every time we see you, you're holding on to that. What is that about? And, and it was a great opportunity to just share stories. So with everything in hand and on back, I set out on, on my first day by myself. Now, this is the only selfie there's going to be, okay? Let me put that out there. Uh, so first day, walked something like 26 kilometers over the Pyrenees. It was one of the most stunning and hardest days of the whole Camino, which was a lot to do with the fact that it was the first day, and it's also the day that includes the most uphill climbs. And just as a side note, I, I was incredibly fortunate with the weather. Uh, apart from one morning where I did have rain, I, I had like 13 days of either blue skies or it was dry. And that was just, and I'm so grateful for that. But arriving at this large monastery at the end of the first day and kind of attending the pilgrim's mass. Those were memorable experiences. And, and each afternoon and each evening as you arrived in various towns and cities, you had to try to find a bed in one of the hostels that are all along the route. And some of those hostels are monasteries. Some of them are privately run. Some of them are local authority run. And most of them tend to provide kind of dormitory type accommodation for a maximum of 10 euro a night. Now, I do also want to say that you can walk the Camino and stay in hotels, okay? And you can also have your luggage transported between each uh, point. But, like, that is not the true pilgrim experience. So, uh, just don't even think of doing that if you were going to do it, okay? But, but there were lots of people who did do that and were treated with great contempt. Uh, Nate... The most challenging part of the whole Camino was the night times. And the reason for that is I don't tend to sleep very well on the first night in a new place. And whenever every night is a first night in a new place, it meant that I was in real trouble. And, I, and so I ended up, and, and this is, this is no, I ended up virtually every single night in a dormitory with something like minimum of sort of four others sometimes up to 20, 30 others, staring at the ceiling, listening to people snoring and stirring, and, or else I ended up listening to music on my headphones just all night. And one of the songs that I heard for the first time and listened to every single night uh, was a song called Oceans. And in a moment, Ruth and Rachel are going to come and, and sing it and I've asked them to do that mainly because I, uh, I do love what this song says. And because it contains a line which rattled around in my head during my whole sabbatical. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. 
lead me where my trust is without borders. I'm kind of trying to work through whether I can pray that. To ask God to kind of lead me to a place where my trust is without borders. Where I'm prepared to kind of step out into the unknown with God. I'll come back to that in a moment. Now don't worry, I'm not, I mean I've I've just done the first day in Camino. So I'm not going to walk you through, excuse the pun, I'm not going to walk you through every day. Uh, Some of the landscape was amazing. I could show you lots of pictures here or just a few. But one of the, one of the most striking uh, places was the Hill of Forgiveness. It was in the end of that little uh, trailer, and those of you who have seen the film will, will know it. But it's where you find these metalwork structures that are dedicated to pilgrims past, present, and future. But what I want to do is just share with you what, what became the most significant aspect of the Camino. And for me, it was the people. My fellow pilgrims, if you like. As I said, I fully intended to walk the Camino on my own. I expected to walk the majority of it on my own. But after the first day, I ended up walking the rest of it with a group of five others. And so Bob from New York, from Connecticut, Gerard from Ireland, Nick from Nottingham, Antoinette from San Diego, and Christine from Germany. And there were others who joined us at certain stages, and one or two dropped out for one or two days. But the six of us shared most of the next 275 kilometers. And apart from one, none of them attend church. And none of them would describe themselves as committed Christians or followers of Jesus Christ. But what I really valued and will forever remember was the communal dynamic of the Camino. It was about the opportunity and privilege to sit and listen and share and spend time, a pretty concentrated amount of time, with a group of people from diverse backgrounds, with different lifestyles, but who were on a common physical journey together. And whenever you're walking for 26 kilometers, six, seven hours a day with people, you kind of get beyond superficial stuff. And you do start to share life. And I think we all learned a lot from our conversations and times together. I know I did. I, I learned so much from these great people. Although as one of them commented, if someone had told them they'd be walking with a Baptist minister from Belfast for two weeks, they would have thought you were having a laugh. <laughs> because many of them had a relatively negative attitude, if I'm honest, toward, toward the church. But as someone who, who works for a church, and I have worked for a church now for something like 20 years, just over 20 years, I realize that I spend most of my time with other Christians and church people, and, and that's great. I love you. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, it was really good, and it was really helpful to find myself in a very different place where I wasn't seen through the lens of my role or my title. And most of you know I'm I'm not into roles and titles, but where I wasn't seen through that lens and where I had to explain to a kind of group of people who became close friends who I was and what was important to me. There's lots more I could say about that. And and please, if you want to chat to me, 
personally about any of this, please do so afterwards. I, uh, I finished my walk in Burgos after 300 kilometers, and here I am sitting outside the very impressive cathedral. Part of me would have liked to have gone on to Santiago, but it was time to end my pilgrimage. The first two weeks on the Camino have been described as consolation. The next two weeks are often described as desolation because the landscape changes. The landscape becomes very barren. The challenge of doing the Camino moves from being a kind of physical challenge to being an emotional, mental, psychological challenge. And quite honestly, that's not what I went for. I went to be restored, to be refreshed. And so I was up for consolation, not really into desolation. So uh, it was right that I ended where I did. Just to take a wee break, I realize it's 10 past. Are people okay? Yeah? Okay. Because like that's, yeah. Right. I'm going to ask Ruth and, and Rachel to just come now and, and to sing this song, Oceans for me. Take me deeper than my feet could. 
After Burgess, I busted down to Madrid. Glenn flew across to Madrid, all pretty romantic. And we enjoyed a, a brilliant six days together. It was, uh, it was so good. And into the bargain, I, I even got to run out for one of the local teams. <laughs> and uh, here is a picture of me beside my sabbatical tour bus. Uh, outside the Bernabeu Stadium. I could not believe when I turned up at the Bernabeu Stadium, this bus was outside the stadium. I just had to get a picture. Just had to get a picture. The next, uh, the next big planned activity of my sabbatical was working in Clement's Coffee Shop for two weeks in October. And again, I, I realize that's a slightly different use or an alternative use of uh, time and sabbatical. And I was keen to do a number of different things. And so waiting on tables and delivering orders and loading and clearing dishwashers for seven hours a day, five days a week, what was pretty different from my normal pattern. Uh, but you know, it was great. It, it really was great. And the fact that I love coffee, and particularly Clement's coffee, was obviously an added bonus. But most of you know that, that pre-church employment, so going back 20 years now, uh, I worked in a commercial insurance brokers for seven years. You know, I, I once did have a real job. And I suppose part of me wanted to take some time in my sabbatical to reconnect with the workplace and the service industry. And I know it was only two weeks and it was only in a coffee shop environment, but you know, I found it so helpful. Again, just to enjoy working with different staff members, interacting with the general public all day, every day, and actually having a set work routine. It's just so good, <laughs> so, so good. I, I didn't, I know this is gonna disappoint a lot, I didn't actually get to make coffee or experience the sheer delight of life as a barista. Uh, but you have to work in Clements for a lot longer than two weeks to gain that opportunity. But you know what? I did get to keep my Clements T-shirt complete with the slogan, we're religious about coffee, which is just brilliant. Okay, I'm consci I really am conscious of time, but so I'm just gonna share a few more things. One is about my 96-hour silent retreat, which again, I know, I know a number of people want, want to discover more about. 
The other thing is about a book that I read called Resilient Ministry, which was by far the kind of most helpful and informative book during my time out. And then thirdly, just to close, I want to finish about being a pilgrim and, and kind of how I, how I understand that and, and how I see myself. So each, each year, and I've done this for a number of years now, and again, you know this, but each year I, I head down to the Benedictine Monastery in Ross Trevor for a 24-hour silent retreat. This time I went for 96 hours, uh, which was quite a challenge but was so refreshing and again, restorative. I love the Benedictine values of silence and hospitality. Those are their kind of two key values. And I also love their daily pattern of, of gathering together five times a day for prayer and for having the opportunity to join them for prayer five times a day whenever the Psalms are read or prayed or rather chanted. It's just so, so different, but so helpful. And after the, the kind of communal dynamic on the Camino, this was definitely much more of a solitary experience in time. And, and therefore, for this chance to just to be still and to know, to be still and to know, to kind of enter that place of silence, which I know for many people is an uncomfortable place. And certainly whenever you do it within community, and I know sometimes whenever we have communion and it is in silence that, that different people react in different ways to that. But to enter that place of silence for 96 hours and just take time to reflect and listen was, was invaluable. And during those four days, I read quite a bit. But I also found myself revisiting my life verse, my kind of life value that ever since my first sabbatical in 2001 has become a key proverb, a gem of biblical wisdom that influences me significantly, or at least I hope it does, I pray it does, I long for it to influence me significantly. And again, many of you will know what my life verse is. Above all else, guard your heart, for it affects everything you do. And 13 years ago, someone challenged me with this proverb, and with this question, David, what are you doing to guard your heart? Because if above all else, guard your heart because it affects everything else you do. What are you doing to guard your heart? And 13 years ago, I didn't have an answer. Or at least I didn't have an answer that stacked up. And that kind of propelled me on a journey that has, that has lasted 13 years and will continue. Because you see, if this affects everything I do as a husband and as a dad and as a pastor and as a colleague and as a friend and everything else that I maybe am, I need to work out. I've, I've known this for, for a number of years now. I need to work out what it means to guard my heart. And so during those 96 hours in that silent place and space, I came back to that and I found it just so challenging again and, and something that I do just want to kind of characterize my future journey and life in ministry. The subtitle of 
this book, Resilient Ministry, reads, I know you're not going to be able to see it in the screen there, but it says, what pastors told us about surviving and thriving? And this is a book that's based, and it was, it was Alan Wilson who was here during the time that I was away, one of the people that you absolutely loved. Uh, Alan, I did Alan's daughter's wedding during the time of sabbatical, and at the wedding, Alan really recommended that I read this. And it's a book that's based on numerous conversations with pastors and their spouses over a period of seven years, uh, trying to discover and discern what does it actually take for pastors not only to survive, but to thrive. And by thrive, what that means is be fruitful in their ministry over the long term. And as a result of their research, the authors of this book uncovered five themes that promote healthy, sustainable ministry. And, and I'm going to share them with you. And the reason that I'm sharing these tonight is partly because I want to be held accountable on them. So this is me being a little vulnerable. I want you, the community that I attempt to serve, I want you to question me and check in with me from time to time on each of these. And coming out of my sabbatical, I hope and pray that I will pay attention and nurture all of them. So here are the five areas that I, again, I'm giving you permission to ask me about from time to time. These are the five things that I need to be paying attention to if, if I'm gonna survive and in any way have a kind of fruitful ministry. Spiritual formation. I, I have gotta be working out what it means to guard my heart. I need to be growing as a Christian. I don't want to be an inch deep. I want to make sure that the kind of like, I'm feeding my forgotten soul, that my relationship with God, my one-to-one -one relationship with God is a priority. And so my spiritual formation is key. Because if I have kind of like nothing to draw on, then, then I'm done. Self-care, I need to look after myself physically and mentally because the number of people who are involved in ministry, who burn out, crash out, bomb out, is actually quite distressing. And as a result of this book's research, the number, the number who do as a result of just neglecting self-care. And so I want you to hold me to account that. EQ and CQ, huge subject, emotional and cultural intelligence. I need to know who I am emotionally and I need to know how to, appropriate respond, how to appropriately respond to the emotions of others. I know that. Marriage and family, my, my relationship with Glenn, I've often said this, but the one, the one aspect of my calling that I am certain of and again, I've shared this before, I, I struggle with this whole issue of call. But the one aspect of my calling that I am certain of is that I have got to love Glenn as Christ loved the church. And, and so I, I, I need, I need to be know what it means to like guard our relationship. And so my relationship with Glenn and also with my girls and constant challenge and beating myself up and all of that. But I, I, I know that if I'm going to survive and thrive in ministry, I'm going to need to pay attention to those two areas. And then the, finally, poetry and plumbing, uh, or rather leadership and management, because leadership is a bit like poetry. It's quite creative. It's quite art uh, intensive. Management is a bit like plumbing. You just need to get on and do it. 
And, and so I do need to be growing in these areas of leadership and management. And, and again, I have so much to learn. So I'm giving you permission to ask me from time to time about these, right? I, I need to stop. To close and, and to wrap this up, a pilgrim, pilgrim's progress is what I kind of call tonight. A pilgrim is defined as a person who journeys. And therefore, whenever you walk the Camino, you're described as a peregrino. And so you're a pilgrim who gets a pilgrim's passport and a pilgrim's shell, and you stay in albergue de peregrinos, uh, shelters for pilgrims. And in many ways, this is kind of how I want to describe myself, as a pilgrim, as a person on a journey. Because in Philip Yancey's latest book, Vanishing Grace, which is another great book that I read on sabbatical. But he reflects on what has happened to the good news and how, unfortunately, we've got to a place where Christians are often seen by outsiders as the bearers of bad news. But in one section of that book, he, he describes and discusses the three kinds of Christians that outsiders to the faith still have some respect for. And one of them is a pilgrim. The person that recognizes they are on a journey, that they haven't arrived, that they don't have everything sorted, they don't have all the answers, they've got lots to learn. And therefore, like John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress 200 years ago, and like his main character, Christian, in that book, they live, a pilgrim lives, Christian lived, John Bunyan lived with a constant awareness and need for grace. And that pretty much describes me, or at least I hope it does, a pilgrim on a journey in constant need of God's grace. And as a pastor of fellow pilgrims, I hope and pray that this will become a community of grace, that this church will be known as a grace dispenser, where the good news at the heart of our faith is faithfully shared and lived out, that we will be good news people. And as the song at the start of this evening said, that we will be constantly breathing in God's grace and breathing out his praise, breathing in his grace, breathing out his praise. Inhale, grace, exhale, praise. So thank you for your patience. Thank you for the chance to share some sabbatical reflections. I hope they've been helpful and interesting. And I hope the benefit that I've received will have some kind of ripple effect in this place.